This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Artistically, if we're not moving forward, we're standing still. Sometimes all we need is a creative spark to propel our artwork beyond imaginary boundaries. And other times we just need to set aside time to work and inspiration hits. Today's episode is about motivating, experimenting, and inspiring the creative mind. Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker Knapp, and I'm here with my co-host, Vivica Hansen-Denegri. Hey, Vivica. Hi, Susan. How have you been? I've been busy. I am kind of psychologically and physically exhausted today because I just got back from Chicago. And I had not been there since I think I was about 12 years old. And all I remember from that trip was eating on the top of what was then the Sears Tower and how cool it was. And this time we went to visit um, Julia, our youngest daughter, and we got totally drenched at a soccer game. She is interning for the Chicago Red Stars professional women's soccer team. So we went on the rainiest day when there was actually a tornado warning in Chicago on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we hit so much art, it made my mind spin. My brain is just... I think I was probably 12 the last time I went to Chicago too. And I'm almost embarrassed to say that because Chicago is such a fabulous city. It has so much art and there's so much creativity there. I remember going to the museum when I was a kid. Um, I think I remember an escalator. It's funny. You remember eating. I remember an escalator. (laughs) But um, Chicago was really special for us as kids, too, because I had an aunt and uncle who lived near Chicago, and my uncle is an architect. And so he would take us Mm. on drives and say, oh, this is an important building because... XYZ and you know maybe the architect or the type of architecture that was used and everything. So that's my experience with Chicago. And then of course, I've been to O'Hare Airport more times than I want to admit. Yes, that's true. I have been there. In fact, I slept in the baggage claim of O'Hare um on my way back from I think it was the Minnesota quilt show a couple of years ago and that was not fun. This trip was a lot more fun. <laughs> I have to say, I'm glad I haven't. I'm glad I haven't slept in there at O'Hare recently, anyway. But tell me about the art because I did see your Instagram, and I was just so taken by it. I just didn't want to work. I just kept wanting to look more and explore more in what you were posting. Yeah, it's so funny because you know we went to visit Julia because you know this is her first big out into the world moment um, on her on her own. And of course, it's so wonderful to see your child thriving and coping with all that crazy city stuff, you know. Um, but I didn't realize how much public art there was in Chicago. It was like everywhere we turned, we got off the, the L, the subway, I was going to say, and to go to our hotel in the theater area. And there was a huge mosaic. And I was like, that looks like Chagall. It that is, is Chagall. I oh know. Oh my gosh, that's Chagall. <laughs> and then I'm like running in circles around it, looking at it. And we were also really close to the Picasso. 
um, which I don't think has a name. Everybody just calls it the Picasso. And then the Flamingo by Calder. And then there's all this architecture. We walked past this really cool building and it turned out to be a post office and it was by Mies van der Rohe. And, you know, you walk a little bit towards Millennium Park and there's the Gary Amphitheater and the Bean. And we had luckily gotten tickets to go into um, the Art Institute of Chicago and got to see Biza Butler's exhibition. And also the Obama portraits were there on loan from the Smithsonian. So it was and then all the architecture, mm-hmm. you know, everywhere, the buildings. So it was it was a little bit of overload, <laughs> to be honest. That combined with the fact that this is the first time I've been out since COVID hit into the big bad world. <laughs> so And the the last time you were out was at a quilting arts TV taping, and that was a year plus ago. Yeah, a year and a half almost. And yeah. actually that was the first time that I'd heard about the Bisa Butler exhibit because I didn't realize it was actually opening at the Kohona Museum which is really close to me. Um right at right. Like, the New York and Connecticut border there. So it it's just incredible isn't it to see things like that up close and you just like mentioned so many of my favorite more contemporary artists they're not contemporary anymore mostly gone. But um yeah. you know all of that beautiful mid-century art and architecture. It's just, it's amazing that you can get so much of it in one place. Yeah, it is. And the other thing I walked away from this trip was thinking about the power of public art. The power of, you know, I, I said to my husband, because he's he's in um, sports business, and so he likes to look at stadiums and amphitheaters and places where concerts and sporting events happen. And so we were looking at that and I was like, I'll bet a lot more people come and see some of this other stuff because of the public art, like the bean, Mm -hmm. you know, all the people who are gathered around that to see it, the draw of public art is so tremendous. If it's done right, it's so meaningful. You know, Um, we were talking about all the movies that the Picasso in Chicago is in, I think Mm -hmm. it's like in the blues brothers, right? Don't they drive right through that? (laughs) They probably do. I can't remember that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I can't remember either. But, you know, the power of, of art, especially in, in a big public setting, is incredible. Mm-hmm. And I saw that again when I went to see Bees' exhibit because, you know, we, walk, we had to walk through the main Impressionist wing. So we were going past Monet's and Renoir's and Van Gogh's and um, Toulouse-Lautrec, and, which I love, just love and Surratt. And then we get to the, there's a big staircase up and a staircase or a staircase down and then up. And then there are these Biza Butler banners hanging there. There were more people in Biza's exhibit than there were in the Impressionists. And they were so engaged. And to see a lot of African-American visitors, almost in tears, to see to be represented. You know what I mean? To be in that. Yes, it's to see yourself in the art. Yeah. To be in that big, important museum and to see somebody who looks like you is is deeply meaningful, especially when you've been left out for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I loved looking up close at her work because I've seen pictures of it. But of course, you know, you know how it is with quilts. You don't you don't really see it until you're up close and you can see what the stitching's like and how she uses the fabrics and how big it is, mm-hmm. all those things. 
But to see people, you know, the families, the little girls coming in and looking at her four little girls. Right. Piece. Um, yeah, it, it brought tears to my eyes, really. It's very powerful. And I think, you know, so the the artist you mentioned before, it's important to see their art. It's very important to see their art and to understand how it fits within the community. But it's also important for the artists to have their artwork displayed too. And I think about mm -hmm. the tremendous attention that Bisa Butler has, has received because of her art being in so many important places and the tremendous attention that the Obama paintings created to a group of artists whose work is just incredible. You know, it's important to put your art out there and to put yourself out there too. And I think that that's one of the wonderful things about today's contemporary quilt artists is that more and more of the quilt artists are having their work in important places and displayed right. beyond quilt shows, which is, you know, quilt shows are still tremendous. But it's right. I heard some comments from people about, oh, this is fabric, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because from a distance, they are very painterly because she's trained as a painter. And I always love it when I see it, when she posts on social media, she always says, there is no paint in this art or something mm -hmm. like that. But people were commenting on the fact that they were quilts and seeing beautiful art that happens to be a quilt in a museum is so wonderful <laughs> for the rest of us who are artists who happen to work in fabric and thread and not in paint or sculpture. So it, yeah, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And I took my husband and my daughter and they both really enjoyed it as well. It was, it was fun to talk with them about yeah. it. And there's that re relatability too, because we all have fabric in our lives. And although we all have paint in our lives, whether it's on our walls or, you know, on the outside of our homes or whatever, it's very different than the fabric that we have in our lives. Because fabric, you know, you're wrapped in fabric from the time you're born to the time that you die. Fabric is soft. Mm -hmm. It's comforting. It, um, it has a certain scent in many cases. Uh, oh my goodness. I'm starting to work with wool, um, wool, batting has a real scent to it. Um, yeah, it, it, does. it touches yeah. all of our senses, but it's also something that is very homey and comforting. And to see artwork that is sometimes disturbing with that homey and comforting um, content in it, you know, it's, it's very interesting. So I'm so glad you got a chance to see those things in, per in person. Must have been a thrill. Yeah, I am too, except that you feel like you have to go back and spend another eight weeks there just to see everything there is to see. I mean, we rushed in and out of the museum, mm -hmm. so we'll have to get back. But it, it was, it was wonderful. Good excuse to travel again. Aren't you glad we could use these excuses? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I'm so excited as well to bring in our guest now, Mel Beach, who's had her own experiences with creativity and inspiration. And let's take a very quick break and then start our conversation with Mel. Let me introduce you to today's artist in residence, Mel Beach. Mel Beach is a San Jose, California-based quilt artist, teacher, and lecturer who loves stretching her creativity through challenges. In 2020, she embarked on her first 100-day project using dice to create outside of her comfort zone. 
She absolutely loved these daily creative explorations and is currently working through her fourth 100-day project. Each project has involved new dice assignments to play with the elements and principles of art, free motion quilting, new sources of design inspiration, mark making on fabric, design layouts, and color. Mel currently serves as the Vice President of Sakwa Studio Art Quilt Associates, and she'll become president in 2022. Welcome to the podcast, Mel. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm delighted to join you both today. So you're joining us from San Jose, California, and Susan is in North Carolina? Chapel Hill, North yeah, Carolina. And I'm on yep. the East Coast, and so we are making this wonderful sort of like triangle um, across the United States, basically. So we're so happy to have you here. Thank you. Well, we thought we'd invite you to join our conversation today because when we're thinking about creativity, especially with art quilts, your name sort of is popping to mind so frequently, often because of the work that I'm seeing you do and post on Instagram. So can you tell us a little bit about these projects that you're doing? Sure. Um, so when the pandemic kind of shut my teaching schedule down in terms of traveling, uh, this was my opportunity to participate in a 100-day project. And I've always wanted to do one, but I always thought, oh, travel is going to prevent that from being successful. And so I started my first 100-day project, uh, which involved rolling the dice. And uh, each dice roll determined what color scheme I'd work with, what element of art, and what design principle I would incorporate into a fused seven inch block. And so I did this daily. Every single night I'd go into my studio, play with fabric, play with those different elements and combinations and see what happened. Um, and I was really thrilled over the course of a hundred days, I had a hundred blocks, but more importantly, I learned so much about how those all work together. I learned a lot about my own style. Um, and I just love the, the way of ending my day with those positive creative um, sessions each day. And so I took four days off <laughs> and I launched into a brand new one. I was, I was hooked, I was addicted. And so, yeah, I haven't looked back. I've been just keep going, going, going. So how did you, did you make up the rules for your 100 day challenge or were you doing somebody else's? Uh, it was my own. Um, I had some sources. I had like a, a book from Lyric Canard and some other ones about design principles. Those were kind of my textbooks, if you will. And so I just kind of looked at what color schemes are out there. And, you know, I think I get myself in a rut. There's certain ones I love to do and really branching out. Uh, same with the elements of art. I picked six because there's six sides to a dice and then six design principles. And so it was kind of based on books and, and what the different lists are and uh, just rolled and responded. Are you going to put those all together as a quilt? Or are you putting them? Or are you just digitally putting them together right now? Uh, that's to be determined. I have yeah, a stack of a hundred of them. Whether or not I put them into one full quilt, uh, they all have they have. There's four different backgrounds, so they could be four smaller quilts. I thought about prayer flags, so I'm still percolating over what kind of uh, layout. Huh. So it seems to me, you know, so we're talking about creativity, and a lot of people think that creativity should be totally unlimited. And, you know, I'm one of them. I think we should be able to go on any avenue that we want to go on. But your creativity had rules to it. And improvisation, whether it is visual improvisation, it's musical improvisation, it's comedy improvisation, all of these, all of these, you know, 
things have rules. So what do you think about using rules, Mel? Are, are they helpful? Are they, do they hinder your imagination or your creativity? Yeah, I, I find you know, having a few boundaries, um, you know, if you give me no boundaries, I'm overwhelmed. I could do this and this and this. But if you give me just a few constructs to stay within, um, it, it really nudges me to make it work, uh, to explore. I don't get so overwhelmed. I can be really intentional and focusing on just those two or three rules. Um, and in many ways, it really is getting me out of my comfort zone to explore, to play, and try new things. So I, I personally find it helpful to have just a few rules. Uh, I find it that a little bit of structure, especially in a 100-day project, really sets you up for success. It's not like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do for 100 days? These rules set me up to have just a little bit of decisions each day and respond. And you made up the rules too. That's the other thing is if rules are imposed on you sometimes, at least me, I tend to bristle a little bit <laughs> unless I agree with the rules, you know, but if you made up the rules, you made up your challenge, then you know, you're going to be happy, right? Absolutely. And I'm not going to say I completely kept those rules all 100 days. There were times that I broke my own rules. And I encourage you are the artist, you get to break your own rules when you see it fit. So a lot of times on day 100, I treated that as my one, uh, my final exam. I didn't roll the dice. I wanted to see how much had I learned, how many of those color schemes, how many of those design principles, how many elements of art could I smash into one seven inch composition. So totally break the rules when you see fit. They're more of jumping off points. Did you have other people doing this with you too? You brought your followers along? <laughs> uh, they were all invited. Um, this first 100-day project, there were, I think, five or 6,000 artists all over the world doing a 100-day project. So I definitely got to connect with other artists. But I think I was the only one that was doing DICE. A few other folks saw it early on, like, can I try this? And so some other folks did make up their own criteria, their own DICE assignments. And it was really fun to have that camaraderie and see how they were growing and stretching. I loved how there was so much depth in what you did. And I don't even know if this particular part was part of the 100-day project, but I think the first time that we met in person, it was at Quilting Arts TV, and you showed a mandala that you were making. And this was your no mark mandala? Was that it? Is that how you, what you called it? Yeah. No, no math, math, no, no mark, mark mandala. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm sorry, I'm an English major. No math is the best kind of math for me. But what I loved about it, and it, just to you know, explain it, a mandala is you know generally something that's circular. It has sections to it, and basically what you did is that you took each section and you quilted them differently, and you really perfected your quilting stitch. So it seems to me that you are very methodical. You're a very methodical person, and although you are absolutely improv and, and, you know, wild with what you'll try. I have a feeling you'll try anything. Um, you, you're methodical about exploring and going deeper and deeper and deeper. And then once you're really deep, you just take it another step further. Is that sort of how you would explain what you do? Yeah, a lot of times I call them my experiments. I was, uh, I, I love science through high school and early college. And so oftentimes I design these as experiments and constantly asking, what if I do this? What if I try this? Why not do this? And so I, I really do kind of try to reduce and kind of figure out what's going to work, what might not work, get that out of the system. Um, but I love to play and experiment. Absolutely. What's really fun is when you experiment, you know, you can be experimenting with stitching 
and designs with stitching. And then you can move on and you can be experimenting with color and applications of color and color interaction. And then you can move on and you're experimenting with the next thing and the next thing. How do you actually hone it down and find what you really like out of all of that? Because, you know, when I think of you and all of that experimenting, I also think, wow, you've got so many tools in your toolbox. Is it overwhelming? <laughs> it can be, absolutely. I love color. So I've incorporated color into many of these in different ways. And it might not always be a roll of the dice, but there's some kind of way of exploring colors so that keeps my motivation going. Each January, I set myself resolutions, creative-based resolutions instead of losing weight, going to the gym, all of that stuff. Um, I set five resolutions, and I really look at where are my barriers, what do I want, you know, where do I want to be in five years as an artist, what's holding me back, um, and what do I kind of curious about, but I haven't had much time to spend on, and that's what I really want to focus on. And so uh, I've been dabbling in some surface design. I've taken a few classes here and there and collecting some supplies. And I really want to be intentional and figure out, okay, what are these different mediums? How can I use them to get the fabric that I want? Not necessarily going to a quilt shop and buying it, but make it myself. And that was in another series of experiments. Let's play with the different mediums, uh, different dice assignments, different shapes, and making my own fabric and just playing. When I was looking at your website, I was really struck by the volume of work that you have produced. It's massive. Do you think that's part, uh, is that done on purpose? And is it part of what drives your creativity? Susan, it's because she's done four of these 100-day projects. If you've got 400 <laughs> things, I mean, you're probably partway through number four at this point, Mel, but holy smokes. If you've got 400, <laughs> that's amazing. They're short little bursts of creativity. So it's a chance for me to kind of play, get it out of my system, see what I learned. A hundred chances. Chances are not all of them are going to be stellar art. I put that out there, but there's going to be a significant number that are really going to be jumping off points and several have turned into finished quilts. And so if you just keep working at it, keep plugging along, you'll be amazed at, hey, I'm getting up to maybe 60% of really successful uh, pieces out of it. With the mark making fabrics, my goal was just to make one piece of uh, 10 inch square per day. Once you started making the mess, once you started making those first marks, which was all scary, your brain just started swirling with new ideas. And most days I did three to four pieces of fabric. And over the course of a hundred days, I did almost 500 swatches of fabric because it just kind of just flowed and it just went with it. So it was super fun, super addicting. And you also work in series a lot, it seems. When I looked at your, your website, you have the work in your gallery kind of grouped and it's definitely series of work. Do you think that helps stretch you know people always talk about as an artist that's one of the things you should do is work in a series what are the reasons for doing that yeah yeah series is for me again i always want to be trying something new i i, I very rarely have ever made the exact same quilt twice maybe for a workshop sample and it's not very fun to do it over and over i love the i love not knowing what it's going to come out at the end I love starting with just a raw good of the fabric and seeing, well, let's see what happens. And so um, doing the series is a way of kind of exploring different ideas. Okay, I tried that, that was successful or not. What else can I do with this? So in terms of like mandalas that Vivica mentioned earlier, I started doing whole cloth quilts and then I started doing some biased tape, some pieced ones, some raw, uh, raw uh, edge uh, applique. 
So I'm always kind of thinking, what else can I do with this? Where else can I push it forward and try something different and unique that's not been done before? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What about this comedy improv thing that you did? <laughs> I don't think I talked to you about this before. And I'm very intrigued. Tell me about what interested you, you know, you in this and what you get out of it. How did you do it? Where did you do it? <laughs> yeah, uh, so that's my little my little side hustle. No, um, uh, years ago when I was first starting to get into the teaching circuit, you know, I was pretty comfortable with my techniques and I had done a lot of education. But the thought of getting up on a stage and talking to three or four hundred people in a crowd. A little intimidating. I could be a fast talker and I want to get more comfortable with that stage presence. And so there's certainly a different programs. I looked into Toastmasters, um, but I've been going to comedy improv shows just about 10, 15 minutes north of me in Fremont and loving it. It's kind of like whose lines it anyway, if you've ever seen that show. And these shows were completely made on the spot based on random audience suggestions. I was like, wow, that is so cool. And they had an ad saying, hey, we do classes. It's a great way to get more confident public speaking. I'm like, what's there to lose? Like, what a fun way to uh, get more confident. And so I started with the basic class. I think it was like six or eight weeks. Loved it. The two hours just flew by every week. And you learn to uh, think quick on your feet. You learn to embrace mistakes and move on. You learn to almost some ways ignore the audience because you're so focused on your teammates, your fellow performers. And so it really got me out of my discomfort being up on stage doing complete shows based on a random audience suggestion, T going up now, talking about my quilts, piece of cake compared to some of the other stuff that we're doing in improv. Yeah. So I, you know, a lot of people mention like, wow, you're so comfortable up there. The improv has really helped me be much more comfortable with my own presence. So I, I actually saw your presentation in San Jose at the, at the um, Sokwa conference must've been two years ago now. It was so fantastic, Mel. And and it really gave me, you know, it made me think about where it is that that we pull all of these things that we learn in life. You know, you're a very competent um, presenter. You're very good on camera. You're really good in person and all of this stuff. But you you searched out something that you were uncomfortable with and you were fearless about that. And I think that just takes so such guts, you know, the, I don't think, I think we should call you the gutsy quilter because, you know, <laughs> what you've just said here is just, it's so important because, you know, we have, we have so many things in our life that we want to be good at, but what's there to lose, you know? So, so you get up there and you forget to say yes. And, or you're making a quilt and you've got the camera on and, you know, you're, you're taping for one of your online classes that you're going to be doing and you make a mistake. So what's the worst thing that can happen? You just have to start over. But um, I think yeah. it's really impressive that you can do that kind of thing. Thank you. I, I actually took a theater course in high school too, because I was, I am very shy, actually. I'm an introvert and I knew I needed to learn how to fake it. And I think it's so valuable for every 
young person to take a class like that because it teaches you that you can kind of put on a, a little bit of a mask or something to protect yourself if you're feeling vulnerable and still be a good public speaker or be someone else for a while or be a different side of yourself for a while, maybe I should say. I think there was a play that was written by, I want to say Kurt Vonnegut called Who Am I This Time? And it was it was about two different um, two different actors on stage who had no ability to talk unless they were in character. And, you know, it's the same <laughs> sort of thing there. But, you know, last year, my word of the year was uncomfortable. And, um, you know, you're welcome because I, I caused the pandemic with that kind of word. But um, being <laughs> uncomfortable is actually one of the first things you have to do in order to feel comfort. You have to know just how outside of your wheelhouse you can get and then, you know, how comfortable you can get coming back and learning. I used to uh, be a ropes course facilitator. So I would take groups out to do team development. And that's what, you know, we had these rings of comfort. And so a lot of people think we're in our happy spot when we're in our comfort zone because we can do it in our sleep and, you know, backwards, forwards. And we're not learning anything when we're in our comfort zone because we already know it. And so as a facilitator, I was always trying to nudge my students, my participants into that stretch zone. That's when they were taking risks, trying something new, and they were learning. Uh, and they weren't, you know, they weren't all the way out in their panic zone, like jumping out of a plane. That's my panic zone. I want nothing to do with it. But going up in the trees, that's a lot of my comfort zone. Um, and for a lot of participants, you know, hey, you've done this before. Would you be willing to wear blindfolds? And that's helped them kind of stretch themselves. And so uh, I'm a big believer in that stretch zone. Oh, Mel, I have so much respect for you. I can't even go <laughs> up like a ladder with three steps without just sort of taking a deep breath <laughs> and saying, I'm not going to fall from this. But facing those fears, is, is that's really, really hard. And it sounds like you almost search it out. Within a reason. Again, I'm not ready to jump out of a plane anytime soon. I don't love to be up in the air in the trees, but I can do it and I can challenge myself if, uh, if that's required. <laughs> Would you bungee jump? Oh, I don't know. I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> Susan, would you bungee jump? I do not want to go bungee jumping. I don't, I, I'm not a risk taker. Uh, phys physically, I'm not a risk Susan, taker. Susan, I won't cross a street generally unless I am on the crosswalk. And I know that that sounds <laughs> oh, silly. I, I mean, okay. occasionally I'll jaywalk, but it sort of sounds uh -huh. silly. But my sister, whom I love dearly, and we do so many fun things together, and we do adventurous things together, she won't cross the street on a crosswalk. So we are like just about as opposite as you can get. You know, when we go hiking or something, she's walking near the edge. When when we travel, she is just doing everything that she can to put herself in a in an uncomfortable situation and I am so safe. Sometimes, you know, I've got mm -hmm. the, I've got my passport inside my shirt and <laughs> The whole thing. <laughs> I I did more physically dangerous things when I was younger. Like I I did rock climbing and rappelling and some things and you know sailboating and you know things like that. But I think as I've gotten older, I'm taking fewer physical risks mm -hmm. because you start realizing that your knee isn't quite that great, and maybe if I take that big step, I might not get up. But here's the thing: um, as an artist, it's so important to say, you know, you're there's nothing to lose here. It's just fabric, right. it's just paint, or it's just a quilt. And, you know, you can cut it up at the end or you don't have to show it to anybody. Yeah. And what I loved, you know, you mentioned, Mel, that you were working with 
some of Lyric's books and stuff um, in your 100-day oh. project. I love that Lyric just says, make bad art. You know, it's okay. Yes. You can make something bad. It's it's not scary. And you can throw it out. Yeah. And with quilting, we can cut it up. We can paint over. I mean, there's so many ways of hiding, disguising our mistakes. So that takes a lot of that pressure off. Yeah. I always tell my beginning free motion quilters that they should make things that they'll either throw away or give to a dog shelter mm-hmm. so that no, even no human being will really see. The dogs don't care if your stitching's okay. Because people are really afraid. It's interesting to me how many people are afraid to jump into something and that they're going to mess it up or it's going to look bad. It's interesting how fearful people are. Yeah, especially quilters. I think they expect perfection from day one. And it's a skill. And it's something that they have to work towards. And we all have our wobbles and bobbles, but we have that progression. And so I try to lower that pressure, uh, manage those expectations, and embrace the wobbles, embrace the mistakes because those often yield really cool design opportunities in many ways. And true growth, really. True growth as an mm-hmm. artist. So I'm curious about how you think this may have helped you, Mel, and where do you think it's going to take your art over time? Because you said you have like these five-year goals, that you set these wonderful goals at the beginning of every year that have nothing to do with going to the gym. How do you think it's going to make an impact on your work? I, I, in this most current series, I'm putting everything together. I'm bringing in the free motion quilting. I'm bringing the design elements. I'm bringing in um, the mark making fabric that I used for uh, creating one uh, 12 inch dice composition each week. I've been so impressed with my first four that have come out. It's, they don't feel like they've come from me and it's just bringing everything mm-hmm. together. It's been really wonderful. Again, no planning. I just start with rolling the dice on day one playing with the fabric, adding some hand embroidery. Um, and it, it really does feel like a very different body of work than I've ever produced in the past. And it's part of it's just that just keep going into the studio, keep putting in the time, keep playing. And so I'm really excited to see where this current series is going to take me because I'm going to be making 14 of these over the course of the 100 days. I'm only on uh, the fourth one so far. So um, I, I, I'm trying not to have too high expectations, but I'm really excited by where this can take me uh, and my art. I was struck when you said, you know, you made a piece and you were surprised because that's happened to me before, too. And isn't that the coolest feeling? It's like, oh, I can't believe I was capable of doing that. I can't believe that came out of, of me, out of my artwork. Yeah, it's it's really fabulous. And it's like an out-of-body experience in many ways. And so to really, you know, by taking those pictures, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I totally own this. But wow, <laughs> um, it's pretty incredible. I wanted to ask you, Mel, I first became aware of your work when you made a piece for an exhibition that I co-curated. And that was the one with all the dollar bills folded up origami style to create probably at least 50 different images. And then they were stitched under tool. And you use so many fascinating materials in your work too. You're very adventurous, adventurous. And you use, you know, you've used circuit boards and holographic film and nylon paracord. What are some of the weirdest things you've ever used in a quilt? And why do you, why do you like that? 
I am a big fan of Project Runway. And um, <laughs> if you've ever watched that show, the favorite episode each season is when they take the designers to do unconventional materials. They take the designers to like a hardware store to make some kind of fashion couture using bolts or whatever else they can find there. I just love how taking away their their comfort, you know, the, the usual fabrics and fashion makes them do really exciting things. And so um, I enjoy adding the unexpected into my quilts. And that includes dollar bills, real US dollar bills. And yes, I did have to write to the treasury department to ask for permission. I was denied. So I had to find ways to do it legally. So I didn't get locked up or fined. I've used, yeah, as you mentioned, two uh, HP laptops that were destined for e-recycling. Those got worked into a quilt and I still have parts to do into another quilt. Uno cards I've done, what else? Uh, trash and recyclables. So pretty much anything's, uh, anything's that if I can find a way to put a hole and stitch it onto my machine, it's fair game. Well, you know, we're back again to you talking about being uncomfortable, right? <laughs> or putting, what what psychologically, have you, have you psychoanalyzed yourself and tried to figure <laughs> out what it is, why you like to be uncomfortable or why you like to put yourself in those kind of situations? Where think, where does that come from? I'm not sure where it comes from. I just know if I can get through this hurdle, then it, 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 it removes that fear factor for me and it's not so scary and it taking away some of those limitations I think we put on ourselves. Oh, I can't do that. And I, I think part of it is I did not start with traditional quilting. I didn't know that there were rules. I learned very much by myself. So I don't know that there was no rules that you can't put computers in there. Um, and so I think that gives me some quite a bit of freedom within my own work to play and try different things. Um, psychoanalysts, I don't know. <laughs> I, I do think that sometimes those things go back to like our childhood or so to some experience, whether it was really good or whether it was traumatic. And, and art can be a way of processing it and working through it and creating beauty out of something maybe that's upsetting or hard. So... Mm. I don't want to go too deep and get into your into your psyche. <laughs> Not going to dig around too much. Well, growing up, I think, you know, we were on a budget and family wise. And so I think we had to make things work. We didn't always have all the best. You know, I always lust over that 64 box of crayons. And I was lucky if I got a box of 10 crayons. And so how do you mix and match colors? Hmm. I don't remember having access to scissors. And so my brothers and I would just punch holes and then perforate and rip things if we wanted a heart. And so I think sometimes not having access to all the good props and tools and you know gadgets that are out there forces us to innovate and, and make it work. I have to agree with that. I think that I think that having too much sometimes limits what you can actually make with it. And with that in mind, I'm trying to get rid of some of the things that I have because I, I do think that um, it also makes me feel like I'm not using them and though so therefore I should be using them and then I feel that guilt for not using them too. So I am I I actually just uh put a a little bag of soy wax flakes in my giveaway to the uh to the art center thing. I'm like I'm not going to be doing this soy wax right now and I really would like someone to be able to use it who wants to use it. But again, I think that sometimes if you limit yourself to for instance just using your stash. How can I make this fabric act like it's orange if it's not orange? How can I how can I really work with it? It makes you be more creative. Absolutely. And it's that going back and forth between having a framework, having some rules, but then at the same time 
knowing that you can push out of, you can push past those boundaries if you want to, because you're an artist and you get to break the rules too. Heck yeah. Break those rules, (laughs) make them, break them, have fun. I had another question about your blog because you are, you continue to blog. You know, there's a lot of people who've kind of stopped because they're posting pictures on Instagram with little captions, but they're, they're not doing that blogging and you're still really documenting your work through that. Is that important to you also? It is. That's why I first started it. I didn't tell anybody I had a blog. For me, it was a way of documenting what materials I was using, what lessons I'd learned from making that particular quilt. Um, gradually, I, would, you know, I think I had my readership with my mom and my partner, and they were the only ones that ever <laughs> read it. And somehow I must have shared it with one or two quilt friends, and it got leaked out, and more and more people started seeing it. But for me, it's really that not just making a project, but also processing it afterwards. And so writing a blog is a chance for me to step back, really look at what decisions did I make along the way? What did I learn from that particular project? What would I do differently? And so for me, I can't tell you as a teacher how many times I refer back to my own blog to answer questions because like, oh yeah, I forgot, but it's all documented there. Um, So that's been a really valuable tool for me as an artist to both see how far I've come as well as what uh, techniques, what materials I've used with some of my past projects. It's almost like that journal, you know, that we all know that we should be keeping or that sketchbook that we all should be keeping, you know, and uh, just being able to reference back to it, I bet is really, really helpful. I know um, I read Austin Kleon's um, newsletter every week. And what I love is that he has so many links to past blog posts that he's put out there. And I think how how valuable is it to be able to look and, and follow the course of, you know, the way your own brain works, because you have that ability having a long-term blog is that you can look back and follow all of those steps that got you to where you are today. Absolutely. And it's also, it seems to me, a teaching tool. For people yeah. who, yeah, who want to know what you're doing or follow you, you can you can kind of teach them how how to go through if you're doing a hundred day challenge, how how you approached it. And I try to share the good, bad, the ugly. So where did <laughs> I go astray? What went wrong? How did I fix it? Um, you know, the blog posts that are just a short suite. You know, those were ones I was really immersed in the project that I forgot to take pictures. The ones <laughs> that have lots of pictures, those are ones I generally struggle with. I took lots of pictures, step back, process, figure out what's wrong, what do I need to do with it. So you can see if it's a really lengthy blog post with lots of photos, it's one that I personally struggle to make bring to fruition. Well, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to, you know, learn how people work. And we're so glad that you were able to join us today and talk a little bit about it, Mel. Thank you. Thank you both. This was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great catching up with you. You too. And I'm really, um, just one last thing. I'm really so excited to be working with you on the Sakwa board and just wanted to make sure that we give a shout out to Sakwa. Um, and all of the great work that they're doing, but also just acknowledge that you are our um, incoming president for 2022. And I'm thrilled that you are going to be helping lead this organization and promoting the art quilt, which you do so joyfully in every opportunity that you have. So thank you. And I'm really looking forward to 2022 with you at the helm. 
Thanks, Vivica. Sock has been a huge part of my artistic journey, my professional journey. So I'm really honored to be able to give back uh, in terms of a leadership role and work with the fantastic board, the volunteers, the staff. Um, They're doing some really exciting things. So if you're not a member, uh, definitely check out Sakwa because we have a lot to offer for those that are passionate about art quilts. Thanks, Mel. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So glad that Mel could join us today. I've been so inspired by all of the work that she's doing, and it's it's just fascinating to see how someone else's mind works. Yeah, and how she sets about accomplishing what she does. She definitely is very disciplined, um, but so creative in the way that she works on her art. And you know, it's it's very motivating to me. I, I totally agree. And I also think that there's a difference between just doing the work and doing the work and doing the work and then having that breakthrough. And I think what she's setting herself up for, first of all, she's setting herself up for success, but she's setting herself up for making that breakthrough and finding just what makes her heart sing. And when you try so many different things and so many different techniques, you are bound to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. And just, and having fun with it, you can tell that it brings her a lot of joy. And isn't that what it's about? I mean, you know, we are, we are here in our studios or, you know, wherever we're working. And if we can't bring ourselves or others joy, you know, that's, that's a sad thing. So I think she is just so joyful and I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to speak with her today. So yeah, you just, I just never know what she's going to be doing tomorrow. So (laughs) got to keep checking back in on her. Exactly. I have, I have a great quote that kind of addresses what we've just been talking about. Um, And this is by Elizabeth Gilbert, the author. Love her. Creativity itself doesn't care at all about results. The only thing it craves is the process. Learn to love the process and let whatever happens next happen without fussing too much about it. Work like a monk or a mule or some other representative metaphor for diligence. Love the work. Destiny will do what it wants with you regardless. I can't add a single thing to that perfect quote for today. (laughs) Thank you so much, Susan. I always enjoy getting back in touch with you and doing these fun episodes together. It's been great. Thanks so much, Vivica. And thank you for listening to the Quilting Arts Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. Our show notes with images, links, description, and more are available on quiltingdaily.com. Our producer today is Daisha Clay, and our web producer is Sarah Erickson. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.